Go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22. That's where we're at this morning in our study. Matthew chapter 22, and we pick up in verse 15. And Matthew writes, Then the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him, speaking of Jesus, how they might entangle him in his talk. And they sent to him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know you are true and teach the way of God in truth. Nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of men. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why do you test me, you hypocrites? Show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And he said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. And so, you know, I firmly believe, and and I trust that you guys believe this also, but I firmly believe that behind every word found in the Bible, God has something he wants to accomplish in our hearts and lives. You know, it's um, one of the reasons why we study the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the entire word of God, because we want the whole counsel of God to be built into our lives. Um, And we want to understand that, you know, these eternal truths that are found in the word of God, they're to be applied to our lives. You know, it's such a privilege to be able to build our lives and our eternity on the word of God. And, you know, our heart and uh, the instruction from the word of God is that we're to be men and women of the word, men and women who can rightfully divide the word of truth. Well, as we approach our study this morning, we want to remember the setting. Jesus is in Jerusalem, and he's just literally just a few days, a handful of days away from being crucified. And the Jewish uh, religious leaders, they're feeling very threatened by Jesus uh, and his popularity uh, among the common people. Just so happens that as um, Jesus becomes more and more popular among the common man, the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they become less and less popular to that same group. So the religious leaders, they're currently engaged, actively engaged in plotting how they're going to kill Jesus. You know, they want to be rid of him. They want to get rid of him. They want to get rid of his teachings. They want to be rid of his miracles. Uh, They want no more to to do with his influence uh, with the people. And again, just by way of review, I also want to remind you of, of these things in context for our study. Matthew 21, verse 23, through Matthew 22, is basically one a continuous conversation that Jesus has with these religious leaders. It's a conversation that started the day after the triumphal entry. 
uh, when Jesus entered into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And then secondly, you might recall that I made mention that Jesus' triumphal entry occurred on the same day, the 10th of Nisan. It was on the same day, the anniversary of the day that Joshua led the children of Israel into the promised land. It was also the same day that the Passover lamb was to be selected as instructed uh, in Exodus chapter 12. And that lamb was to be without spot. It was to be without blemish. In other words, it was to be perfect. It was to be flawless. It was to be without defect. And then that little lamb was supposed to be inspected and scrutinized for four days to make sure, to ensure that it would be an acceptable sacrifice. You know, way back in Genesis, Genesis chapter 22, Abraham climbed Mount Moriah with his uh, son Isaac, his only son, uh, it says, uh, the only son that he loved. And he went there to offer Isaac as a sacrifice as instructed by the, the Lord. And on the way up the mountain, Isaac asked Abraham, he says, look, the fire, the wood, you know, we got it all, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham answered him and said, Genesis 22, 8, said, my son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So in the Gospel of John, as you continue your study through the Bible, in the Gospel of John, you see John one day, he sees Jesus walking towards him. And he declares John 129, John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then Paul, he also declared 1 Corinthians 5, 7 in regards to Jesus. He said, For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. So when you connect the dots, what you see in the Bible is that the Bible teaches Jesus is our Passover lamb. He was selected on the 10th day of the month of Nisan, fulfilling scriptures. And the religious leaders, unknowingly to them, they're about to scrutinize Jesus for four days. They're going to scrutinize him four different times. To, they're going to uh, examine him and scrutinize him to make sure that he is an acceptable sacrifice. Again, that he's perfect, flawless, without any blemish or defect. And Jesus is going to be examined publicly by his enemies. And he's going to be found, again, spotless without blemish. In fact, the repeated testimony of those uh, who are his enemies, the repeated testimony of them is, I find no fault in him. And as then you continue through the study, as we continue through our study of of the Gospel of Matthew, we're going to see Jesus is sacrificed. He's crucified during the Passover. He's, he's offered as a sacrifice for the sins of the world, for your sins, for my sins, for our sins. And interestingly enough, to me at least, that story doesn't end there. You know, the story continues, right? As you continue to study through the Bible, you come to the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 5, we see Jesus in heaven appearing as a lamb who had been slain. And we see the 24 elders falling down before the lamb. And we hear them say in verse uh, 5 in, 
the 11 through 12, we hear uh, the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and a number of the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands and thousands. You know, it's just a way of saying it's just an innumerable amount. It can't be numbered. And what are they saying? They're saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain. You know, I just love how the thread of our salvation is intricately woven throughout all the scriptures. And the deeper we go in mining out the truth, um, you know, the richer the understanding we gain of what God has in store for us, what he's done for us and what our future holds. Well, now to our study, a little bit more background. Uh, Jesus, you know, he's just... Uh, delivered this scathing rebuke to these religious leaders through the three parables that uh, we have just studied. The first parable in the second half of Matthew chapter 21, the parable of the two sons, where the religious leaders were portrayed as the disobedient son. And then the second parable, the parable of the wicked vine dresser, also in the last portion of Matthew 21, and it was in that parable that the religious leaders, they understood that they were the wicked vine dressers in the story, plotting to kill the son. And then the parable that we studied last week, the parable of the wedding feast in Matthew 22, verses 1 through 14. Uh, we saw when we studied that, that the religious leaders, they realized that Jesus was saying that they were the ones that rejected the invitation of the king to attend the son's wedding. They rejected the invitation of God. And they clearly understood that Jesus was leveling a serious charge against them and saying that the kingdom of heaven was being taken away from them and that sinners, tax collectors, harlots, ordinary people like you and I would enter the kingdom of heaven, would enjoy the joys and the pleasures of the wedding feast, that would enjoy the joys and the pleasures of the kingdom while they would be uh, cast out of that kingdom. So what do you think, what, what do you think the religious leaders do with that? You know, in response to uh, the accurate portrayal and exposure of their uh, rebellion and rejection of God in those three parables, what do you think the religious leaders would do? Well, we read verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. I mean, they just retreat briefly so they can concoct some scheme in order to trap Jesus in his words. In a parallel passage in Luke's gospel, Luke 20, 20, we read, So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous, that they might seize on his words in order to deliver him uh, to the power and the authority of the governor. So after confronting Jesus in regards to where and who gave him the authority to do the things that he had been doing, and uh, after being publicly humiliated in the process, you know, they decide to send spies out to watch Jesus. You know, spies who would pretend to be righteous. Spies who would carefully listen to everything that Jesus uh, would say, hoping that he would slip up so they would have something to use against him. Now, I'm not entirely sure. But if you want to entangle Jesus in his speech, 
You know, if you're looking to trap the Son of God and the God of Son and something that he has to say, uh, I think you probably got a pretty big job ahead of you. Uh, you know, maybe we could just say, you're going to have to wake up pretty early in the morning to get that done. Psalm 139.2 says, you, speaking of God, understand my thought afar off. Psalm 139.4 says, for there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. And Psalm 44.21 says, for he, again, it's speaking uh, about God, for he knows the secrets of the heart. God knows everything. Everything you think before you think it, he knows it. In fact, he knows our thoughts 10 minutes from now, 10 days from now, 10 years from now. He knows everything you're going to say, not only before you say it, but before you even begin to think to say it, he knows what you're going to say. He knows every secret within your heart. <clears throat> This kind of knowledge puts Jesus at a tremendous advantage when it comes to any kind of debate, right? Here's God in human flesh uh, standing right in front of these, these guys, and they're going to try to trap him in something that, that he says. Good luck with that, guys. Over the next few weeks, Lord willing, we're going to see the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes confront Jesus and try to trip him up. And they're going to carefully craft a series of political, ethical, and theological questions to uh, throw at him, to confront him with. Well, why do they want to do that? Why, why are they going to do that? So that they might have something to accuse him of in order to discredit him before the people. <clears throat> Excuse me. You know, I personally find it funny and sad at the same time just how hard people are willing to work in order to reject Jesus. You know, they're willing to work so hard instead of just looking at the facts, looking at his teachings, you know, the miracles that validated his claims, you know, the countless number of people that he touched and healed, broken lives made new, hundreds and hundreds literally hundreds upon hundreds of fulfilled prophecies, everything pointing to the fact that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the Son of God, God the Son. There's no other conclusion that you can come to if you just are willing to honestly look at the evidence. <clears throat> Why fight the truth when a person can just give themselves to it and then receive blessing uh, as a result? You know, I don't understand it. But in verse 15, uh, 16, it says, And they sent uh, to him their dis the disciples, their disciples, with the Herodians. Now, it's interesting to see how far these religious leaders are willing to go in their attempt to trap Jesus. Uh, what the religious leaders are doing is purely deceitful. It's nothing else, right? The Pharisees, they don't dare to go to Jesus themselves. So they send their disciples with the Herodians pretending to be righteous. If just the Pharisees came to Jesus with this question, it would have seemed much more controversial. 
And if just the Herodians came to Jesus with this question, well, that would have also carried with it, uh, you know, a negative vibe too. So both groups go together, hoping that together they'll come across as genuine, that they'll come across, you know, as sincerely wanting to know and wanting to learn instead of looking like they're just up to no good. It's interesting to see that the disciples of the Pharisees were sent with the Herodians. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me also if we were to find Saul of Tarsus in this particular group. This is some place that he would probably be. You know, it's a little unexpected, though, that, to see these two groups working together because these two groups, they didn't get along, right? You couldn't find two groups that were more diametrically opposed or further apart uh, in regards to their <clears throat> view on Rome. The Pharisees, they were the religious leaders and the legalists of the nation. They sought to gain a right to standing with God through meticulously uh, keeping the law. They hated everything about Rome. And they saw Rome as the occupier of their land. They hated the idea of paying taxes to Rome. They saw it as supporting, you know, the pagan corrupt activities of Rome. They saw paying taxes to Rome as supporting the very nation that was oppressing them. You know, and on the other hand, you have the Herodians. They were a political party, right? And they pledged their allegiance to Rome. Uh, they totally supported Herod and the Roman Empire. In fact, they looked at Israel under Roman law and they said, you know what? It's never, we've never had it this good before. I mean, we've never had roads like this. We've never had peace like this. I mean, we can travel safely any place we want to go, day or night. I mean, Israel's never been so safe. And because of the allegiance of the Herodians to Rome, the Pharisees hated them almost as much as they hated Rome. The only thing these two groups had in common was their common hatred for Jesus Christ. Now, these two groups, they go to Jesus thinking that Jesus wouldn't recognize them as a threat. And they're hoping that Jesus, as well as all the people that are, that are watching, they're hoping that they'll uh, just, you know, that they just want Jesus to weigh in and give his opinion, you know, to give them the benefit of his thoughts on this very pressing question that has been the cause of this separation between these two groups. And, you know, as they come to Jesus and Jesus shares his thought, you know, they're hoping people will think, well, you know what? You know, Jesus is going to bring healing. They're after healing. They're after seeing this rift between the two of them mended. And, of course, they don't remotely want anything like that. You know, they're just uh, looking to trap Jesus. And, again, let me say it. If you're trying to outwit or hide something from God, you know what? That's a pretty tall order. Um, to me, it's an interesting thing to observe, and I think this is a spiritual law. When you're actively rejecting Jesus' lordship in your life, right, the sin and rebellion, that sin and rebellion will cause you to associate with people you never, ever would have ever imagined you would associate with, right? When a person rejects Jesus, that sin will cause them to do things that they never would have imagined that they would do uh, in their life. 
Well, the Pharisees sent to him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God in truth, nor do you um, care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of men. So they come to Jesus using this, this flattering speech. You know, it's just empty words, though, as far as they're concerned. They just come and they just start laying it on as thick as they can. They call him teacher, but they actually are seeking to treat him shamefully. And they pretend respect for him, but they're actually plotting against him. And they're being completely phony here because they don't see Jesus as a teacher. In fact, they oppose his teaching, even though it's only Jesus that reveals the true nature of God the Father. And they don't see Jesus as true. If that were the case, they would have embraced him as the Messiah. And they don't see Jesus uh, in that he, he is truly teaching the way of God. If that was true, then they would have repented from their sins because Jesus exposed their twisted legalistic view of the law and their gross misrepresentation of God. You know, they couldn't get any more wrong saying that Jesus didn't care about anyone because he cares about everyone and he even cares about this group of people too. But what they're trying to say is that Jesus is not a respecter of person. And that's true. He shows no partiality. It doesn't matter who you are, Jesus loves you. And it doesn't matter uh, what, you can, what you do because there's nothing that you can do to make him love you more and there's nothing you can do to make him love you less. He just loves you. And he loves you with an everlasting love. And I find it ironic in that everything they said about Jesus, it was true. And verse 16 is one of the, just a, a very few places in the Gospels where the enemies of Christ make this beautiful confession of the truth regarding Jesus. But it just comes out of deceitful hearts and lying lips. I mean, you just wish that it came from a, a heart of somebody with sincerity, somebody that genuinely meant it. Well, Jesus sees through their flattering words. We need to be aware when people come to us with flattering words. Not always, of course. You know, sometimes those people are genuine, but there are times when people will come to you with flattering words, just trying to butter you up in an attempt to manipulate you. There are times, you know, uh, and you know what, again, people, they just don't always come to us with praiseworthy intentions. So we just need to be wise as serpents and gentle as doves. You know, I've, I've found that some of the people that have stabbed me the hardest claiming to be Christians are those that spoke very highly of me in uh, my presence. So we just need to be wise. I heard Alistair Begg uh, say one time, I love his teaching. He said, flattery, says it with that Scottish accent, if you know Alistair Begg. He says, flattery is like perfume. It's okay to smell it. You just don't want to swallow it. <laughs> I thought that was funny. Anyway, says, it says, and they sent to him their disciples with the Herodians saying, teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God and truth, nor do you care about anyone for you do not regard the person of men. And what they're trying to say is, 
Jesus, to Jesus is, we know you believe in the truth. We know you speak the truth. You love the truth. And we know that you're not influenced by the crowd. And you don't care what others are going to think. We know that if we ask you, even right now, if we ask you a tough question, you're going to tell us what's right. Right? Regardless who's listening, because you're all about the truth. And again, what they're doing is they're just trying to set Jesus up, right? I think one of the important lessons for us here is that the enemies of Christ never give up. They've tried to trap Jesus before, and they just keep coming back time and time again. They're just hoping to, to trip him up. They're just hoping to wear him down, hoping to discredit him before others. And you know what? We have an enemy that's even more persistent than these religious leaders. Ephesians 6, 12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of high place uh, of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. In Revelation chapter 12, the devil's called the accuser, and it says there that he is the accuser of the brethren who uh, actually accuses us before our God day and night. You know, our enemy is relentless in his efforts to try to trip us up, to try to wear us down, to discredit our witness before others, to make us ineffective for the cause of Christ. He hates you. He hates me because he hates our Savior. And that's why Ephesians 6, 11 says we need to daily put on the whole armor of God that we may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. In verse 16, they say, Teacher, we know you're true. You teach the way of God and truth. Nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of men. The disciples of the Pharisee, along with the Herodians, they come to Jesus and say that he teaches the truth, and he does teach the truth. In fact, Jesus is the truth. They say that he teaches the way, and he does, right? In fact, he's the only way to the Father and to everlasting life. And they say he doesn't care about anyone, but he, that he's a straight shooter speaking the truth to everyone. And again, that's also true. And that's why he tells us of our need for a Savior. He calls all men to repent and turn from their sins, placing their faith in him for the forgiveness of their sins. And they continue in verse 17. They say, tell us, therefore, they're going to lower the hammer now. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? So in this time, there were three main taxes that Rome demanded of the population of Israel. The first was a ground tax, which was 10% of grain, 20% of all oil and wine that was produced. And that tax was partly paid with the grain, oil, and wine, and partly paid with the money. The second tax was an income tax. It was 1% of a man's income. And then the third tax was a poll tax. And the poll tax was required from every man from the age of 14 to 65, and of every woman from the age of 12 to 65. And that tax amounted to a denarius a year, basically one day's wage for a blue-collar worker. Now, the tax that they're questioning about Jesus here is the poll tax. And 
Paying the poll tax was considered by many as an obvious sign uh, of submission to Rome. The Pharisees opposed the poll tax because they didn't want to be in submission to Rome. And the Pharisees saw paying this poll tax as a validation of Caesar's authority over the nation as their king. And they saw that as an, as an insult to God, right? Because Caesar considered himself to be a God. So what they're asking Jesus is not so much, should we pay this tax or not? What they're asking Jesus is, is it lawful according to the law of Moses to pay this tax to one who claims to be God? And again, they've carefully crafted this question in order to put Jesus in what they think is a serious dilemma, right? And it's a loaded question to be sure. I mean, if you want to divide a church, if you want to uh, divide the support of a leader within the church, get him to take a strong stance and strong stance on some non-essential political issue. And they've, uh, they've asked this political question of Jesus ever so craftily, right? And in their minds, Jesus has only, uh, you know, one of two possible answers, right? If Jesus were to say it wasn't lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, then the Herodians would immediately run off to the Roman officials and, and would tattle on him, right? And then they'd come and arrest Jesus and throw him in prison for insurrection. They would have accused him of inciting an uprising, um, a rebellion, and a revolt. And just like many countries, Rome, you know, they were pretty touchy when it came to taxes. And they were especially sensitive when it came to any Jewish teacher teaching anything that was even remotely close to an insurrection against Rome. One of the most troubling things for Rome in, maintain, in maintaining the Roman Empire throughout its history was maintaining law and order in the region of Israel. The Jews were more forceful in their rebellion against Rome, causing it to just be like the, uh, a powder keg ready to explode, even uh, with the slightest hint of trouble. So if Jesus uh, was to say that it wasn't okay to pay taxes to Rome, the Jewish religious leaders, they would have been more than happy because the Roman officials would have scooped him up, thrown him in prison, and he never would have seen the light of day again. Now, if he were to say that they should pay taxes to Caesar, then the Pharisees would have accused him of being a friend of Rome. Right? Because the people hated paying taxes. Just like in our day, taxes were viewed as excessive and unfair. So in their minds, the minds of the religious leaders, if Jesus were to say, yes, you're to pay taxes to Caesar, the people would have abandoned him because they thought the Messiah was coming into the world to throw off the oppression of Rome. And so the uh, religious leaders would then have successfully discredited, discredited Jesus before the people. And they'd accuse him also of being a disloyal Jew, a friend of Rome and the pagan godless culture. And his followers would abandon him. They would no longer embrace Jesus as the Messiah. So in the minds of the religious leaders, they've just put Jesus between a rock and a hard place. 
right? They've trapped Jesus before uh, between the throne of God and the throne of Caesar. And in their mind, whatever Jesus says, you know, they come out ahead. Either way, it's bye-bye Jesus, right? You can just imagine how excited these religious leaders must have been thinking this question and bringing this question to Jesus. I mean, you can just see them strutting down the street to bring this question to Jesus, you know. And Jesus says to them, to their question, he perceives their wickedness and said, why do you test me, you hypocrites? Right? Jesus sees their action as wicked because the whole time they're claiming to represent God, well, you know, they're just engaged in outright deceit. They hate Jesus and, and have nothing but bad intentions for him. And they're coming to Jesus acting like they're open to whatever it is he has to say. And Jesus calls them out as hypocrites for that very same reason. He calls them hypocrites in the Greek, right? Meaning mask wearers. It was a term from the theater where an actor would wear an exaggerated mask in front of his face to portray a character. So they looked like one thing on the outside, but inwardly they were something completely uh, uh, different. And Jesus saw right into their wickedness and hypocrisy. And we, and we need to remember all of this is going on before a large crowd. Back in Matthew 21, 23, they confronted Jesus, uh, interrupting his teaching. As he's teaching, a large multitude of people in the temple court, right? So you can just imagine, as we've seen in times past, this, this huge crowd suddenly gets real quiet, real fast. And every head turns and is focusing on what's going on in order to see what's going to happen next. And every person in that crowd is straining to listen to what's actually going to be said. Because you know what? No one spoke to these religious leaders like this, saying, why are you guys coming around here trying to tempt me? You guys are such hypocrites. Jesus knew what they were up to. He knew all the while that they're just trying to trap him. And he calls them hypocrites because they weren't interested in the truth. They were, they were just pretending to be sincere, pretending to be righteous, asking uh, this question. And they could care less about whatever Jesus had to say. They just wanted to be rid of him. So these religious leaders, you know, they're just filled with hatred, deceit, and sin as they come with flattering words to Jesus. And it says, verse 18, Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, why do you test me, you hypocrites? And to me, again, it's interesting. Jesus goes on to answer their question. He didn't answer every question that was asked of him. You know, there were times in his ministry when people asked him questions. And, you know, if it was an honest one, he would answer it, you know. Uh, maybe he wouldn't, right? He'd either say nothing at all or ask them a question. If, if it was a dishonest question, he felt no obligation to answer every question regardless of how sincere that person was or wasn't. And he knows this whole thing is fake and phony, but he's going to answer this question. And, it, and the reason why he answers this question is because he knows in those days and all the way into the future, into our day and beyond, right? He knows that his disciples 
And, you know, people of the world are probably going to be a little confused and wonder, yeah, what about paying taxes to a government that's sometimes corrupt? Yeah, yeah. What are we to understand about these things and how we're to conduct ourselves in a nation and in a world that's corrupt? So Jesus answers this question for our instruction, for our benefit. In verse 19, Jesus says, show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius. Jesus requests a coin. And I tell you what, man, don't you just love Jesus? I mean, he is so far out ahead of everyone else, right? The religious leaders have this struggle with Roman occupation. They have this beef with Caesar, the corruption of Rome, and the paganism that accompanies it. And Jesus is, again, exposing their hypocrisy of, of these religious leaders, and he asks them for a coin. And someone in the crowd, one of these religious leaders, produces a denarius. And again, it's interesting that the religious leaders had a Roman coin in their pocket, right? It wasn't accepted in the temple precincts, right? Had they truly had a beef with Rome, they wouldn't have pockets filled with Roman coinage. They would have stuck exclusively to the temple shekel. In asking for a coin, which was produced by uh, one of the religious leaders, Jesus exposes their hypocrisy, uh, asking whether they should pay taxes in submission to Rome. Because they weren't so displeased with Rome, at least, you know, they didn't hate Rome enough not to carry Roman currency around with them. They're complete hypocrites. He asked them whose inscription is on this. He says to them, whose image and inscription is this? Every time a new Caesar rose to power, as soon as that Caesar came to power, what he would do was he would mint coins and, and put his image on it. You know, the Romans viewed this, this image and the inscription on the coin as a declaration of ownership. And, you know, the same is true in very you know, many countries uh, today, right? Have you ever seen a British note? You know, British notes, every single one of them has the queen's picture on it, has the queen's image on it. And, and the currency is considered to be hers. I mean, it's her country, it's her money, right? It's kind of like when you were a kid, you wrote your name on your backpack or, uh, you know, on your underwear, I don't know, you know, maybe on a ball, whatever, right? In a similar way, the Romans viewed that image and inscription on the coin, it declared that it was Caesar's, and it was Caesar's coinage in their pockets, right? And it meant if you had Caesar's coins in your pocket, it meant you were submitted to Rome. In verse 21, they look at the coin, and uh, they said to him, and they answer him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render, therefore, to Caesar the things that are Caesar. And now look very carefully. He says, and. In verse 17, they said, or. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And Jesus says, hey, guys, it's not a matter of either or. It's an issue of and. Jesus said, render, therefore, to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. They ask in verse 17, 
Is it lawful to give? That's the word they use in the Greek. Is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar? And Jesus answers using the word render, to give back. It's a different word in the Greek. Jesus says, you have something that belongs to Caesar. It has his image on it. It has his writing on it. So give back to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Caesar's image was on the coin. And in a similar way, God's image is on us. The Bible teaches that we're the image bearer of God, that we were created in the image and likeness of God. Mankind is the pinnacle of God's creation. And God's law, the Bible says, is also written on our hearts, just as Caesar's inscription was upon the coin. Therefore, Jesus is saying, give to Caesar what is his, since you bear the image of God. Give to God now what is his. Jesus is telling these guys, you know what? Your problem isn't with Caesar, whether or not you're to pay taxes to Caesar or not. Your problem is with God because you're not giving back to him what's his. Give back to Caesar the things that, that are Caesar's and give back to God the things that are God's. Jesus is saying to them, as well as to each of us today, since you bear the image of God, then give your life to him. Surrender your life to him and live your life for him alone. Jesus leaves Caesar on his throne and he points these guys to God upon his throne. Just an interesting side note. Had the Jews given God respect and honor? Had they lived in obedience to his word? Had they surrendered to God and sought him with their whole heart, with an undivided heart, a singleness of heart? Had they rendered to God what was his due, they never would have had to render anything or even worry about rendering anything anything to Caesar, right? And their continued disobedience to God and rejection of the Messiah is actually going to result in Caesar coming and destroying the city of Jerusalem in just less than 40 years, 70 AD. Our disobedience carries with it serious consequences. That's the lesson. In all of this, Jesus plainly and clearly declares that government has a rightful place, a needed place in the grand scheme of things. Jesus clearly endorses governments as a divine institution of God. And a Christian can live in subjection to the government and to God at the same time. And Paul affirms this in writing to the church in Rome, Romans 13, 1. He says, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. We don't have that slide. And if you don't know it, when Paul wrote those words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writing to Christians, Nero was the emperor of Rome. Nero was a madman. He was demon-possessed. 
He was killing Christians. And Paul advocates, again, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul advocates submission to the government as an act of obedience to God. You know what? Throughout the whole New Testament, we're taught that as committed followers of Christ, we're to live as good citizens, supporting the God-appointed institution of government. And please, listen carefully. Don't misunderstand me. What I just said, that doesn't mean we have to support or agree with everything that the government decrees or initiates, right? But we should respect, we should submit to, and we should support the institution of government and the need for government in the fallen world. God's heart for us as his people is wherever we live, wherever we go, we should be the best of citizens of that land as a witness and testimony to Jesus Christ, bringing glory to his name. Paul wrote to Timothy, 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 3, says, Therefore, I exhort, first of all, that supplication, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may uh, lead a quiet and peaceable life and all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. Peter also wrote, again, under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit. Peter wrote, 1 Peter 2, 13 through 17, he says, Therefore, submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. That's the reason we do it. Whether to the king is supreme or to governors as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free yet not using liberty uh, as a cloak for vice, but as a bondservant of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Peter and Paul both taught that we're to live quiet lives in subjection to the authorities, to abide by the laws of the land. And we have an obligation as Christians to pray for those in authority, to respect the king, or in our case, the president. And I know maybe a lot of you guys are thinking, I thought it when I wrote it, the president, man, Gary, you're carrying this a little too far. No. That's God's heart for us. That's God's command to us. It's only when they come to us and say, you can no longer read your Bible. You can no longer pray to your God. You can no longer share Christ. You can no longer attend the gathering together of the brethren. It's at that point that we esteem our heavenly citizenship more important than our earthly citizenship and we refuse to go along with those decrees. And we let God do what God wants to do. Apart from that, God calls us to live in quiet submission. And in verse 22, when they heard these words, they marveled and they left and went their way. I mean, it says they marveled at Jesus' answer. You know why? Because Jesus is amazing. 
They marveled because his answer to the disciples of the Pharisees and the Herodians was just so marvelous. Don't you just love the word of God and the wisdom of God? You know what the sad thing is that they all marveled and then left him. That's the sad thing. They should have marveled and surrendered their life to him. And that continues on even today, even within the church. Many people look at Jesus and see him as marvelous, but fail to give them, give him their heart. They see him as wonderful, but they don't see him as worthy of their praise. They admire his wisdom, but refuse to be guided by him and his wisdom. They take things into their own hands. And like these religious leaders, they walk away just as empty as they came, lives unchanged by their interaction with Jesus. This encounter with Jesus was an opportunity for them to place their faith in him, right, and be saved. But it was their hard hearts. It was their insistent rejection of Jesus that kept them from salvation. Well, I think there's a few timely lessons uh, here in these, this passage for us to learn. I'm always amazed where God has us in the Bible when we're going through it. And the first timely lesson, I think, is that we're to give back to Caesar what's his. As we head into tax season, what do you think God's trying to say to us? Pay your taxes. If we enjoy the benefits of government, then we have the responsibility to support that government with our money. If we enjoy the benefits of a standing army so that, you know, to protect us so that we can't be attacked from, you know, evildoers outside, right? If we enjoy the peace that we, that we have knowing uh, that that army protects us from attack, from invasion, from occupation of a, of a foreign nation of the world, you know what? That's just one of the things the government supplies. But if we enjoy the benefit from that, then we're required to support it, right? The military protects us from threats that are outside our borders. Law enforcement protects us from threats with inside our borders. And I believe in, as Christians, God calls us to support the police as well as our courts and our legal system. Is our legal system flawed? Of course it's flawed. It's flawed just like you and I are flawed. You know what? It's flawed because we live in a fallen world. It's only when Jesus comes and sets up his kingdom here on earth that things are going to be made right and righteous. So until then, God calls us to pray for our government institution, to pray for our leaders, and work for change where change is needed in submission to God's law, conducting ourselves as representative of God before an unsaved people. If you enjoy the benefits of roads, bridges, clean drinking water, electricity, all, uh, all of which we call infrastructure, if you enjoy the benefits of in infrastructure, then you should pay your taxes. It's, it, if you enjoy uh, it, that benefit, you know, we have to understand it's not unspiritual to pay our taxes, supporting these kinds of things. We're to honor and pray for those people who are in authority over us, the Bible says. That's the type of support we're to give our government. Secondly, 
lesson for us to learn here is we're to give back to God what's his. Just as we're to give to Caesar that which bears his image, we're to give to God that which bears his image. God has blessed us with so very much, right? And I guess that for most of us, our struggle also is not with Caesar because we do pay our taxes. Our struggle is rendering to God the things that are God's. He's given us life. We sang about it today. He's given us life. You know, we're to give our lives to him totally, completely, holding nothing back. He's given us time. Do you have any understanding of just how precious the time is that he's given us? You know, I, I honestly believe if we could interview people in heaven today and ask them if they have any regrets, I guarantee you not one single person in heaven today would say, you know what? I regret not playing more golf. You know what? I regret not spending more time at the office. I regret not making more money so we could have had a bigger house to live in. But I do believe every one of them <clears throat> that we interviewed would encourage us not to squander the time that God has given us. I believe every one of them would say, I regret not living my life more surrendered to Jesus Christ. I regret not pouring into my family, not living my life in a way that would encourage them to live for the Lord. I regret not living my life with a complete, reckless abandonment for Jesus, giving back to him everything he gave to me. I don't know if you know this or not, but we're in, we're, uh, you know, in the top 5% of the wealthiest people in the world 95% of the people on earth can't imagine making the money uh, that each of us do, even if you're just receiving Social Security. There are at least 38 countries in the world that report the average yearly income of its citizen, average yearly income of its citizens at less than $1,500 a year. And, I'm, and, and that's not African countries only, as you might think, right? When I felt God was first calling us to the mission field, I was talking to a friend of mine about, you know, the wealth that God has given us as Americans and, and the freedom to travel he's given us. And you might not realize this, but we can travel to almost any country in the world and not have to worry about getting a visa. If we need a visa for that country, it's just a matter of paying the fee. You're free to go. And we were talking about this, my friend and I, about the financial, the blessings that the Lord has poured out on Americans along with the freedom to travel. And I said to him, I wonder why God has blessed us in that way. And my friend said this, I'll never forget it. God has blessed us financially and with freedom to travel so that we would go and share the gospel. God has provided us with finances and freedom so that we would go. We only have so much time in life to be used for God's glory. Time is fleeting. God forbid we waste it. Moses says, Psalm 90, verse 12, so teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. We're to prioritize our time with him and for him. You know, he's also given us today and I'm confident that for all of us, I'm hoping, pretty confident, 
He's given us tomorrow too to read his word, to draw close to him, to seek his heart, to share his love. He's also provided for us financially. It's all his. And we're to be good stewards of what he's given us and to use our God-given resources for his kingdom. You know, if you don't know it yet, let me tell you, I don't talk a lot about tithing. I don't. And it's not because I'm afraid of the subject. I mean, hey, I'm teaching through the Bible verse by verse. When it comes up to an issue of money, I'll talk about it. If you're not tithing, then you're not giving back to God what's his. That's the truth. Malachi 3, verse 8. Do we have that slide? Will a man rob God? Yet you've robbed me. But you say, in what way have I robbed you? In tithes and offerings. Interestingly enough, you can only rob what belongs to somebody else. What do you mean by that, Gare? Well, I can't, you can't steal from me something that isn't mine. And it's not considered robbery if I take something that is mine, right? The finances that God has given us is his. And not tithing is robbing God. If you're not tithing, you're stealing from God. Am I trying to lay a trip on anybody? No, I'm just telling you the truth. The money that God's given me is his. It's not mine. It's all his, 100%. He allows me to manage 90% of it, and he commands me to give a tenth, right? And that's what the tithe means. It's just giving a tenth. And we're to bring that tenth, that tithe, into the church is what Malachi set, goes on to say. Listen, just to be clear, God doesn't need your money. He's not broke. The lights aren't in danger of going out. You know, you've heard pastors say things like that. God doesn't need your money. But he knows that we have a need to give. Every time we give, we give a little bit of our selfishness away. We have a need to give to be part of what he's doing in this community, to be part of what he's doing in the world. In obedience to God's command, we tithe. He's also given us gifts and talents. And we're to give them back to him and service to him. Everything we have is from the Lord. Our lives, our time, our finances, our talents, our very breath we sang about it. Our life all comes from him. All of our days are numbered and we're to give them to him as a, as a gift, right? They're given to us to use for his glory. And we're to give them back. Everything we have, everything we are, everything we hope to be, it's all a gift from a wonderful, loving, giving God. Let's not squander it. Let's not squander it. Let's give it all back to him. We're both citizens of heaven and citizens of this country. And as messed up as things may or may not be in this country, God has blessed us with so much. Tremendous freedoms in the United States. You know what? We can even complain about Caesar, right? Without any fear of reprisal. You know, there are a lot of countries in the world, if you're heard complaining about Caesar, you're only heard complaining once. We shouldn't take anything for granted this country offers us, right? But Jesus shows us here that the big issue in life has nothing to do with taxes or our nation. The big issue for the disciples of the Pharisees, the big issue for the Herodians, and the big issues for each of us is we need to render our lives to God. <clears throat> As a church, 
As followers of Jesus Christ, we need to live according to God's will and obedience to his word, right? And we're not to try to explain it away when we don't like it, like the Pharisees did. Thank God for this country and the freedoms we enjoy. But our main concern needs to be Jesus and the kingdom of God. You know what? I want all of us to be known, first and foremost, as followers of Christ. It's my prayer that we would be known, first and foremost, as bold witnesses of Jesus Christ. You know, first and foremost, we would be known for our love for the lost. First and foremost, our desire to glorify God, instead of being seen as someone with a strong political view. I pray that each of us will spend more time talking about Jesus and sharing the gospel than we spend talking about worldly things that are simply going to pass away, that are unimportant, that are just temporary. Galatians 2.20, Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul says, it's all about Jesus. My life's all about Jesus. My spirit's all about Jesus. My mind's all about Jesus. My emotions and my affections, all about Jesus. It all belongs to him. I, I, I've given it all to him. I've rendered it all to him. And Jesus says in the verses that we're looking at today that, that we're to give our tax money to Caesar and we're never to give our lives to anyone else but God. Does God have your life 100% this morning? It's a question worth asking. Does he have it? Really? Does he have your life 100%? Does he have your heart? Does he have your mind? Does he have your soul? Does he have your strength? Is your life fully rendered to him? Are you still growing daily in your relationship with him? Or is your relationship with him uh, become one that's a little bit compartmentalized? I mean, you have these areas over here that you control, right? And there are these areas over here that are surrendered to him for him to control. We need to give our life completely 100% to God the Father, to Jesus Christ. There's great benefits in being citizens of God's kingdom. Forgiveness, grace, mercy, tremendous faithfulness. The ability to come before him at any time with our prayers and, and, and um, you know, petitions. But most of all, the priceless relationship we have with God Almighty now and on into eternity. We can't get caught up with the things of this world, squander the riches that have been um, made available to us through Jesus Christ. Let's commit in our heart, not just today, but seriously commit in our hearts for a lifetime that we're going to live lives that bring glory to God until that day we meet Jesus face to face.